Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part one of episode number 74 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. Hello, so first of all, I'd like to welcome all you to part one of episode number 74 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I am Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? I wanted to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and my 23-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a huge 60 Music fan slash expert slash nerd. And uh, each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show in two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks into my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, what's will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind that same track. And that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the musicians on the track, whether that be the studio musicians or the band members, on what studio the song was recorded at, where that studio was located at, what label the song was released on, where that label was lo- located at, and the peak position the song made up build, made up on the Billboard Hot 100 charts originally, and the year month it was released. All that is in the second part of this show. Moving on, let's get started in this week's song, shall we? Okay, so since last week for my podcast, I did something completely different than what I've done before on the show. Um, I did a brand new artist from right now that has that vintage 60s sound i'm gonna do something completely different again than what i've done on this podcast already but i'm gonna take things back to the 60s this week and do an artist and group from the 60s to kind of keep the 60s theme alive with this podcast but what is so different about this week's and next week's artist and song for this episode of this podcast is that I'm going to introduce to you a genre of music that was widely popular in the 60s, but has since made a major decline in popularity since the 60s has ended. And this genre of music you might not honestly be familiar with at all, and if you aren't, that's okay. This entire podcast is supposed to introduce you to new things that you may or may not be familiar with. Because this genre of music I'm about to introduce you to is something nobody really plays anymore today, and it only pretty much exists in one kind of form. Well, that's not necessarily true, but what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you don't, you're not gonna, if you, if you're a member of the LA music scene and you go to a lot of shows, you know, today you're not gonna see bands doing this specific type of music, um, you know, and when you, when you, in other cities too, like Nashville and New York and a couple of other places, with the exclusion of maybe jazz, you're not going to see bands doing music exactly like this. And it only, and the thing is, is that, um, you know, the kind of, you know, music that, you know, the this specific genre, uh, you know, today is is comp- is even 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 if it still exists, it's a complete polar opposite of you know its original origins from back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, basically what I'm getting at is that this genre of music I'm about to introduce you to is instrumental music. Now, um, basically what I meant by that is that the only kind of instrumental music, at least in the mainstream you hear about today, 
is a lot of the dubstep and a lot of that um, trap music, a lot of that electronic stuff. But anyways, um, what I'm getting at is that, yes, there were songs back in the 60s that were incredible tunes that did not have words. Um, But the thing to remember is that unlike what most people consider instrumental music today, which is dubstep or trap music or incidental you know, cues or instrumental tracks that you hear in film and TV and commercials. Um, 90% of the instrumental songs in the 60s could have basically had lyrics added onto them, and many of them did. So for the most of the instrumental songs of this time period, there were versions with vocals added on with the singer singing lyrics to the original instrumental melody that was in the original instrumental version of the song, and then there was a version without the lyrics and just an instrumental, you know, playing the melody, um, you know, with one instrument playing the melody. But anyways, so when you listen to a lot of these instrumental songs, and by the way, I'll do a lot more um, in this podcast, but I kind of wanted to get you guys' feet wet with just the instrumental genre by doing a song that kind of kickstarted that whole movement. But anyways, so when you listen to a lot of these instrumental songs the first time and you're thinking, man... I could easily see there being a version with lyrics added onto it. Well, your way of thinking isn't necessarily wrong because many of the melodies in these instrumental songs were essentially a perfect fit for somebody to write lyrics to them. And that definitely did happen. But 90% of the time, although there were always a few exceptions, most notably with Grace in the Grass with Hugh Masekela, um, the instrumental was always the biggest hit. And sometimes the instrumental would be a cover of a song that originally had lyrics added on to the original melody. Like, for example, um, A Taste of Honey. That song originally had a lyric and a melody, but the biggest hit was an instrumental. Um, but anyways, at least that version of the song. Um, instrumental songs from the 60s oftentimes vary from super cool, badass tunes with incredible arrangements um, and by the way, a lot of these songs were in minor keys too, which also made them really sound really cool. And to really weepy, corny, schmalty songs that were almost unlistenable. But today's song is somewhere in the middle between those two, but I figured to give you a better idea as to this whole genre of music unofficially got started, how it, how the whole thing just kind of took off. Um, I might as well, you know, start from the very beginning-ish because, you know, there are tons of instrumental songs in the late 50s, but um, at the time, there are many subgenres of instrumental music in the 60s varying from orchestral or band R&B pop to the genre of music I'm going to introduce to you right now uh, in, this, in this week's episode of this podcast, and that genre of music is known as surf rock. Now, before I talk about this week's song, I want to give you an idea for what this genre is to those of you out there who are completely unfamiliar with the specific specific genre of surf rock. Okay, so first let me ask you this. If you ever go to the beach, what kind of music are you generally thinking of? Well, nine times out of ten, you're probably thinking of either Hawaiian tropical music or when you see somebody surfing on a surfboard, catching a wave, you're thinking of a genre of music known as surf rock. And essentially, the reason why it's called quote-unquote surf rock is because the sonic sound of a clean guitar drenched in reverb creates an image of people at a beach either drinking 
and having a good time and eating food or catching or surfers catching a wave on a surfboard. And today I'm going to be talking about arguably the first ever song made in that genre music and the first to ever become a huge hit at a time when it really when surf rock honestly did not exist. And you know that genre was totally something completely brand new and uh, something that nobody has ever heard of before until this record came out and was released and it became a big hit. This song came out in July of 1960. It's by a band, an instrumental band, called The Ventures. It's other than Walk, Don't Run. Did I just catch a wave or what? Holy crap. I mean, I literally just, I hung 10 for a minute, and wow, was I really feeling the wind blowing in my face? Oh, yeah. I mean, wow. If anything, that is just totally 100% like surf rock all the way. And uh, and, and when I listen to it, I think of like Southern California, and I think of just that beach, and I think about that breeze and the ocean and everything, but... Um, now here's the thing. So normally, what I do with uh, these part one episodes, uh, I break a song down and show you guys what makes a song so good musically and lyrically. But guess what? This song doesn't have lyrics. So guess what? Um, it might be a little bit shorter than most of my other uh, episodes of this podcast because we're not going to break down the song's lyrics because there are no lyrics in the song. It's instrumental. So. Um, this whole I'm gonna dedicate this entire part one episode to the song's music since there's no lyrics to the song as an instrumental and I'll do that for any instrumental song I do from now on on this podcast. Remember, like once when 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 I do an instrumental song, it's gonna be all about the music since there's literally no lyrics. You know, so um next week's episode is gonna be all about the history behind this band on the adventures and where they record the song and how they formed, but Today is going to be all about the song's music. Okay, so what makes this core song so cool musically isn't necessarily the chord progression. I mean, let's face it. The song doesn't necessarily have the most innovative or interesting chord progression, but really, that's just a reflection of the time the song was written and recorded because this song only came out just five months into the 60s. So for the most part, musicians and songwriters' heads were more or less still stuck in 1959 as far as chord changes and harmony was concerned at that time. And people hadn't quite moved on from those late 50s chord changes yet. And they wouldn't officially until at another couple years into the 60s. So really, this, to see what makes this song so cool is that we have to look at the overall sound of the record. So we have to look at the o- what makes a song so cool and what makes it sound so good today, even though, let's face it, I mean, this recording is 59 years old. Um, it sounds incredible for, for something that was more than likely done live to, for two to three takes as far as the song's mix is concerned. And one thing I will say is that the song was originally mixed in stereo but released on a mono 45. And okay, so let's talk about that for a minute. 
um, let's talk about you know stereo versus mono because a lot of you out there have no idea what I mean when I say stereo versus mono and what the difference between uh, those two um, things as far as how it relates to music. Um, a lot of you on this podcast are probably listening to me right now and thinking I'm speaking foreign language. So let, let's, let's, I'm going to talk about that for a minute. Um, okay, so the terms mono and stereo are actually super old terms that date back to ancient Greece. Um, but they basically mean one versus two things. Mono being one thing and stereo meaning two things. And how this all relates to music is that typically we all listen to music either monarly, meaning through one speaker, or stereophonically, and stereophonically meaning through two speakers. So how this relates to the song is that the song was originally mixed in stereo, so if you ever get the opportunity to listen to this song through a pair of headphones or through a pair of speakers, you'll notice that some instruments of the song are on one speaker, and typically there are two speakers in any stereo situation, the left speaker and the right speaker, and the, uh, there are other instruments on, you hear certain other instruments in the other speaker. And how this relates to music history is that when you bought a single back then, and keep in mind, when people used to buy music in the 60s, you either bought LPs, like, you know, um, you know, with a with like, you know, six songs on one side and six songs on the other side of the LP, or you bought 45 RPMs, which would typically you buy two songs for the price of one single, an A side and a B side. But the thing I'm getting at is that most 45 RPMs back then, in which were the singles people used to buy before, the, again, this is before CDs existed and before the iTunes store existed and even before you know streaming, um, most 45 RPMs that people bought in from record stores were mixed in mono. So when people heard the song, unless you had a stereo speaker system, you would hear the song in mono through a portable kind of record player with its own speaker, which meant that everything that was coming out, everything you were hearing was coming out of one speaker. And if you bought the 40, bought this 45 back in the day and you played it through a record player turntable, which had its own speaker, and I believe most of them were mono at the time, you know, you would hear everything coming out of one speaker versus two. But in reality, the song is originally mixed in stereo. So when you listen to it today versus back then, you'll hear the separation of the instruments in the song, so you really get the full sonic treatment of using your two ears to hear the song as opposed to only using one of them to hear the song, which can sound really cool, but for the most part, most 45s were in mono, and most songs at the time were also mixed in mono, except for this one. So as a result, this song, or when it was originally came out, had to be mixed down to mono because there are very few stereo record players at that time that the song came out in. So essentially, if you're thinking, okay, so if the song was originally mixed in stereo, but then it got mixed down to mono and got released in mono, how did people wind up hearing the original stereo mix of the song? Well, um, when the song got reissued and re-released in CD and in a digital format online through via streaming, uh, you know, the the people that produced those CD compilations uh, got a hold of the original stereo masters and it, the song went back to being a stereo song, 
or they were they took the original mono master and remixed it and remastered it to stereo. But anyways, getting back to the song, it being like a surf rock song, I'm sure when you listen to it, images of surfing and being on the beach pop up in your mind. Well, if that happens, it's mainly because the guitar tones they're using on the song create are create a very surfy vibe with the guitars being drenched in reverb even though it was recorded nowhere near the California coast at that time. But we'll get into that in the second half of this podcast. And also, the drum beat the drummer is playing also has a very surfy vibe. And really, if you think about it, when you're listening to the song, you might wonder why the song hadn't hasn't been heavily sampled because in the very beginning of the song and in the middle of it, there are two breaks where it's just drums and nothing else. When people started electronically sampling music, what they would do is that they would find songs like this where there would be maybe three or four bars of just drums and nothing else, and they would just take that one section and fuck with it and incorporate it into their own original work of art. And this song would be a perfect candidate for that because it has two sections that anybody could just sample and incorporate into their own song. But since this song hasn't fallen into the public domain yet and, and is still under copyright, I mean, it was originally written and recorded in the 50s. And, uh, you know, I believe the length of copyright is life was 75 years. And this song hasn't quite turned, hasn't turned 75 yet. Um, a clearance for that sample would still be needed, but... Since it is part of something you can't technically copyright, which again is a drum part, it can become a complicated copyright mess after that, especially since they did not, the Ventures did not write this song and someone else wrote it and recorded it first, but I'll get into that more in the second part of this uh, two part episode of this podcast. But, anyways, but, anyways, the last thing I'm going to going to focus on for this one, this part one of this part two part episode of this podcast is the chord progression. Okay, so this chord progression in the song sounds familiar to you. It's actually an old cliche Spanish chord progression, but with one new twist. The one chord is major versus minor, but that within itself is a classic parallel major, parallel minor move that is subtle that if you didn't catch it, you probably would have thought it was a minor one chord. And the rest of the song, including the bridge, is, stand, is standard A minor chord changes. But another interesting thing about the song is that the guitar players use the Bixby wiggle stick, which is another reason as to why the song sounds so surfy along with this heavy reverb on the song's clean guitar tones. Um, but anyways, um, you know, yeah, they basically use that wiggle stick at the very end of the song, and plus, like, during the bridge section, too, once they're going to get back to the A minor chord, going back to the, you know, E dominant 7, going back into the song's uh, main chord progression. But anyways, um, basically, um, another reason why as to why the song sounds so surfy and sounds so much like the beach is because, um, you know, the guitar player's usage of the Fender offset guitars that were just literally just came out, they're, almost, they're pretty much brand new at the time, uh, the Fender Jazzmasters and the Jaguars. Um, basically, uh, these guitars were meant to basically had a very surfy song sound along with uh, the Princeton and the Twin Reverbs, uh, the Fender amps that definitely had a lot, definitely were known at the time for their reverb units, which were used in a lot of these surf rock records. And uh, Fender was a guitar company based in Orange County, and they came out with these offset guitars as alternatives to their biggest, two biggest, big selling models. Uh, 
the Stratocaster and the Telecaster. But um, basically, they came out with these offset models of Jack's Master and the Jack Wires to give people alternatives to their two biggest selling models. But yeah, so that's another reason why the song sounds so surfy um, with those uh, those those uh, those guitars drenching reverb and also um, you know uh, the amps that they were using at that time. And yeah, so this song is definitely very cool. Even though it's not necessarily like absolutely mind-blowingly good, it's still a very cool song and definitely something different than not definitely isn't anything I haven't done before already in my podcast. So that concludes part one of episode number 74 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you liked my analysis on this week's song, and you thought it was cool, you never heard this song before, you never even heard of surf rock, and I turned you on to this brand, this new genre of music to you, it's not necessarily new, but it's a new, it's a new genre of music to you, and you never even heard of it, um, please email me at samltwilliaicloud.com, and you can also follow me on Instagram at iheartoldies, and check out more of my original music at samwilliamsmusic.net. Now, before I get to what I usually say at the end of every episode of this podcast, I want to let you guys know that um, somebody who I've interviewed on my show before um, has released a book, um, I think this week, actually. Um, his name is Eddie Holland. He's the guy who co-wrote all those huge Motown hits in the 60s. Um, I interviewed him for the fifth interview episode of the show, and I don't know if you guys listened to the episode, but he specifically said in that episode that he was coming out with a book called Come and Get These Memories, and he co-wrote it with his brother Brian Holland. And uh, I, I want to let you guys know that the, the book is out right now. So it's called Come and Get These Memories. So if you guys want to buy it, I believe it's available on all the usual um, suspects where you can buy a book like Amazon or, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's available in Barnes & Noble or some of the places where you can actually buy a physical book, but... I'm pretty sure it's on Amazon. I would have to double check on that. But yeah, um, you can buy the book now. Um, also, um, somebody died yesterday too. I think like late last night. His name was Ginger Baker. And uh, Ginger Baker was somebody who was part of this totally revolutionary psychedelic rock band called Cream. And Cream was one of the first super groups from the 60s, and they totally changed the game as far as psychedelic rock is concerned. I'll do them at some point on this podcast, but they're really well-known. One of their biggest hits was one of the biggest album rock classics of all time, uh, Sunshine of Your Love. And again, they're another one of those groups that sort of tread the line between being an album rock band and being a singles band, and uh, much like Steppenwolf, the group we did last week. But anyways, um, also a couple of things you can check out there in the description of this episode of this podcast. One of them is the official uh, Sp- Spotify playlist for the show. And there you'll be able to find all the songs I have talked about on my show so far, plus some of the songs I've mentioned in the interviews I've done on my podcast in the past. And uh, you can find that in the link that is in the description of this episode of this podcast. So, you know, if, if you want to, I really appreciate it. You can check it out, give it a follow. And hopefully that will give you some ideas for the kind of material I do on my podcast on a weekly basis. I really appreciate it if you could do that. Um, but yeah. Um, also, another thing that is in the description of this episode of this podcast um, is the official Redbubble merchandise uh, store for the show. 
and there you'll find these really cool uh you know all these super dope items on there which have this really really cool logo that i came up with it's basically the catchphrase i say at the end of every every show in tie-dye heap on truck and font and the name of my podcast on the bottom and uh it's really really cool and i'd really appreciate it if you can go on there and just uh you know like maybe like look at some of the items and let me know what you think of the prices of each item and the logo itself um you can do that by emailing me at samltwilliatiCloud.com or you can reach out to me on Instagram too at iheartolies and also um for those of you out there who don't use Spotify and can't access the official um Spotify playlist for this podcast what I'm going to do is that I will create sometime this week I'll create a YouTube playlist for this podcast for all of you YouTube users out there who don't use Spotify now I would create an Apple Music playlist too, but I don't have Apple Music, so I can't really do that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a YouTube playlist for all you YouTube, uh, you know, viewers out there who do not uh, use Spotify and you know want to still hear the songs I've talked about on my show so far, including the ones I've done in my interviews. So I'm going to do that, and uh, yeah, so I'll let you guys know when that's complete. I'll throw that link also. In the description of this episode, this podcast, and also, as always, a link to this week's and next week's song, too. Um, you know, depending on if it's a part one or part two, or if it's all in one episode, um, I'll throw that. I'll always put the link to the song and talk about each week in the description of, of each episode of this podcast. So that way, you can check out the full length version of it. Anyway, so um, I'm Sam Williams, and thank you guys again for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. Until next week, police! Keep things groovy.